This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today are Professor Sid Bedingfield, who is at the University of Minnesota, and Professor Patricia Sullivan, who is at the University of South Carolina, where she's not only a member of the Department of History, but also she directs the History Center. So, Pat and Sid, welcome to the Journal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sid has a new book out called Newspaper Wars, Civil Rights and White Resistance in South Carolina, 1935 to 1965. Before we get into the book, Sid, who are you and your people, and how did you get to South Carolina? Because you did spend some time here at the university. I did, in fact, and there are betting fields in South Carolina. I um, grew up in Vidalia, Georgia, and um, was a journalist for a long time. I worked at newspapers, uh, Birmingham Post-Herald, late and lamented, Birmingham Post-Herald, um, the Greenville News, briefly. And for a wire service, also late and lamented, United Press International. I did that in the early 80s. And then I went to work for a new company out of Atlanta called CNN uh, in 1985. No, that was really when it was just getting started. Well, I always say I started after it made its first profit. I was a very practical guy, and it made a profit in 1985, and I joined up. I learned TV there, uh, great experience, 20 years Got to travel the world, cover, covered elections and stories overseas. But by 2005, it was it was time to go. I um, got a call from Charles Bierbauer, who was the dean here of the School of Journalism, what I like to come teach. I loved it, but I also loved the research that I saw going on around me, too. And I thought, you know, that research is what I really want to All do. Right. Research in journalism or in the history department? Yeah, or... It was both. It was both. Also, there was some good social science research being done in the School of Journalism and MassCom. These were smart people doing good work, and it had more endurance maybe, a little more depth than I was getting out of the daily journalism at that point. And I thought, you know, I need a change of pace. And so I not only continued teaching, but I worked it out so that I could enroll in the MA and PhD program at the School of Journalism and Mass Communications. That was in 2007. Okay. And Pat, you've been here a little bit longer. 14 years. Your area of expertise, civil rights, specifically the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. You wrote the history, the definitive history, but that got you into looking more specifically into that organization and civil rights in South Carolina. Yes, it did. It was a great uh, point of entry into civil rights activism during those pre-1960 years. And I met some of the remarkable people that are featured in, in Sid's book, Majeska Simpkins. I came here as a graduate student and met her in the 1980s, and John McRae. Uh, and this state, its history is so rich, and that's why it's so exciting to have Sid's book, because we, we're just getting into, after someone like Peter Lau, the, the stories. Uh, but the NACP was a major sort of infrastructure for the work of those earlier decades. Sid, you mind one of the really rich collections, and that is the W.D. Workman papers. Mm -hmm. Just an amazing collection. William D. Workman, of course, was a journalist in South Carolina since 1936 from Greenville, uh, went to the Citadel, and then uh, worked at the um, – actually went to Georgetown Law School for one year in D.C., decided the law wasn't for him, and got a, a job at the Charleston newspaper, uh, News and Courier, and began his newspaper career – Eventually made his way to Columbia, where he was a, a capital correspondent for the News and Courier and other newspapers. And uh, Workman was interesting, too. He was one of the first multimedia journalists. Uh, Workman very early on worked in radio and the emerging medium of TV in the uh, 1950s as well. And he kept everything. That television, I did not realize he, that Bill had done that. He, um, around the late 40s and 50s, the Charleston newspaper owned a radio station in Charleston, and Workman was sort of assigned, it seemed to me, and I'm not certain of this, but it seemed like it was a little bit of a, uh, you know, they didn't give it a lot of attention, and they sort of turned it over to Workman to sort of uh, manage the radio station for a while there in the late 40s, and then when he got to WIS, 1952, WIS came on the air here in South Carolina. I believe I have that date right. Bill Workman was hired to sort of run the news division, actually left the newspaper for a brief period of time, didn't like it, 
you can imagine how tough it was. He was trying to launch a new medium here, uh, and he didn't really like it. But he, he always, even when he went back to the newspaper, he did election night commentary. He did radio commentary on WIS radio. He was uh, very prominent on other media than uh, just the newspaper. But he kept everything. His papers are enormous and therefore incredibly valuable, not just to me, but think of the historians who have come through those papers mm-hmm. and used them to tell stories, everything from Kara Fredrickson on uh, her book about the Dixiecrat campaign, and on and on and on. They are a marvelous resource. Bill was, as I said, a multi-talented, multifaceted because he also was a politician, sub Rosa sort of, but then actually very open when he ran for the U.S. Senate and later for governor. Uh-huh. And the papers are pretty complete from 1936 until he died. Mm-hmm. One of the arguments in my book is just what you said. He was a politician and a journalist from the beginning. And I mentioned uh, when he left law school, came back home, he wrote a – he was a very um, introspective guy. And he wrote a long sort of memo to himself that is kept in his papers. And he talked about why law school was not right. He went to law school because he wanted to be involved in government and law in some fashion. But he decided that wasn't the right avenue the real avenue to be involved in politics and government for him was newspaper work. And he said this, and you know, he was thinking that way in 1936. And it is true that Workman, from the beginning, saw himself as both a journalist and a political activist, kind of a throwback to the press of the 19th century, where you had the editor politicians who were openly and deeply engaged with the political lives of their community, saw it as their obligation to do that. Well, I was going to say, with William Watts Ball at the News and Courier, even though he was still editor well into the 20th century, he was out of that 19th century school. I mean, he was involved in South Carolina politics openly, but he always had an opinion and endorsed candidates. More than an opinion and more than endorsement, he certainly did that. But in his view... An endorsement meant you went to work for that candidate. You organized for that candidate. He saw this. He, you know, he sort of made his name opposing uh, Cole Blee's when he was at the state in uh, 1913, 1916. He opposed Blee's. Blee's lost, I believe, is 1916, and and William Watts Ball got some of the credit because of he put that newspaper in the campaign against Blee's, not just in what he wrote but out there working it uh, as an activist. That was the throwback model. Well, he, Not supposed to do that in the by the time you get to the 50s. Yeah, but prior to that, he was instrumental in Tillman's being elected. He thought Tillman was the right answer to solve the state's problems in the 1890s. But then you say journalism changed. I, I think that's something people talk about today is what is a journalist's role? They are to tell the story. They are to be a biased partisan. What's the deal here? I I think uh, journalism underwent, of course, a professionalization process across the 20th century. It was a time of what the economists would call media scarcity, right? You had very few media outlets. And uh, as journalism emerged in the 20s and 30s, there was this view that journalists need to be professional and they need to um, be impartial, detached, and this sort of new term they were using, objective. Um, and this is uh, this became the norm for mainstream daily journalism. And then when broadcast journalism started, it adopted this same model. But there was a question there. You know, the even uh, you know, my book highlights how some journalists who by the fifties were articulating their support for objectivity and impartiality felt a great tension about practicing that when the issues became very important to them or very important to their community. It was very tough to um, abide by those standards of detachment when you thought that the issues in play were so important. And we saw Workman and Thomas Waring and and others of that time um, struggle. They would tell their, you know, they would proclaim their support for objectivity and detachment, but they thought that the political events were so important they needed to engage directly in them. And so they did it sub rosa, as you say. And I think there may have been more of this going on than journalism historians have allowed up to this point. And 
Thomas Waring was editor of News the and New, News and Courier. And we need to remind folks, yes, today it's the Post and Courier, but right. for right. generations it was the News and Courier. And, of course, there were two major southern newspapers at that time that were looked upon as objective, the Louisville Courier-Journal and the Atlanta Constitution. They were the standards that people were measuring other southern and even national newspapers by. Both liberal papers in many ways. Well, see, we use that term. Right. By the standards of the South at that time, they were they had liberal editors, right, in Ralph McGill and Mark Etheridge, right? Yeah. But there is, you know, there is a, a, a book that focuses on the liberal journalists, you know, John Kneebone's book, and in ways that, that, that you, you deal with in your book, I mean, looking at how these journalists or editors responded to the challenge to segregation that that gained momentum during World War II, and and Nimbon argues they became apologists for segregation. So the the term, you know, historic, yeah. what how things evolved. Right. Um, I thought Nimbon's book made a good contribution there. They were they were liberal, in my in my view, and I try to articulate this in the book. They um, uh, embraced what was cons- what were considered to be liberal views mm-hmm. in the twenties and thirties of better race relations, better um, economic opportunities in the South, better education. But their liberalism came to an abrupt end when you got to integration. As African-Americans pushed harder as you got into World War II and past World War II, they were taken aback by it, Uh, even even Ralph McGill initially. Um, And some moved pretty far to the right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the the newspaper wars because you're really talking about uh, a major Southern African-American newspaper based here in Columbia, The Lighthouse and Informer, I guess, warring with the News and Courier. So let's go back to Mr. McRae mm-hmm. and how The Lighthouse and Informer figures into not just the newspaper wars but also the civil rights movement. And then, actually, Pat, I'm going to throw that one to you. Yeah, uh, John McRae and the Lighthouse and Informer were sort of major catalysts, you know, during a period when things began to to open up. And as Sid really lays out so well in his book, uh, John McRae started out in Charleston, but ended up coming to Columbia in 1930. Came to Columbia, and um, the first edition was 1941. 1941. Launched the paper in 1939 in Charleston. Okay. And, of course, he has a fascinating background growing up in Lincolnville, mm-hmm. an all-black town. And, you know, I had the opportunity to meet him when I was a graduate student. He lived in Talladega, Alabama then. But, you know, learned about uh, the importance of growing up in that place, you know, mm-hmm. seeing blacks in positions of authority. He went to Talladega College. So he's sort of of that of that generation. Right. But, he, he be, you know, he begins his, his activism in Charleston. Mm-hmm. But he's coming on at a time when what's happening – with the Depression and the New Deal and the NAACP, as you mentioned, you know, these people are coming to the fore like Majeska Simpkins. But what McRae does, and, and again, what, what Sid demonstrates so powerfully in this book, is that, you know, the, the critical role of that newspaper as a part of this early organizing effort and, and really reaching out to people around the state and reporting news that wasn't reported in the white press and and becoming sort of a, a rallying force mm-hmm. for black activism in terms of voting rights and mm-hmm. people education. Well, one of the amazing stories about communication in the black community is Levi Bird from Sherall mm-hmm. and others used the train station where they would get the Pittsburgh Courier, the Baltimore African American, the Chicago Defender. Mm-hmm. And... They would distribute it through mm-hmm. the state, and that was how the black community got its news mm-hmm. prior to World War II. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. important. It, there is a, an interesting history there. There was a, a, a man named Nathaniel Frederick, a Republican lawyer, black Republican in the um, pre-World War I, who launched a paper called the Palmetto Leader. And used it to oppose lynching and to call for a federal um, anti-lynching measure. And it was an aggressive paper for its time. Uh, and through the 20s and then into the 30s, he grew ill. Um, it lost, uh, obviously, advertising, struggled to survive during the Depression. And eventually, he died and the paper moved away from any civil rights coverage at all in South Carolina and became essentially a um, society and church paper. Mm-hmm. Majeska Simpkins was deeply concerned about this. 
And it's Majeska Simpkins in the 30s who is trying to generate more activism in the state who says what we need to build the NAACP is a, quote, fighting news organ, she called it. We need uh, an African-American paper that is devoted, frankly, to the NAACP and that avenue of protest. She spotted McRae, who had had some problems in Charleston, um, gotten into some... some well, I, I think that's an interesting part of, of this story are the struggles and conflicts within the African-American community. And although McRae would later be known as a, an aggressive crusader, mm-hmm. working with the NAACP in Charleston, he was he wrote a letter that had him labeled as an Uncle Tom. That's right. right. To me, it is a signal and a sign that we should all understand that the black community is never a monolith, that there are always multiple points of view. And McRae, you know, has his argument about what he did, but it was during the federal um, anti-lynching mm-hmm. legislation debate. And the NAACP thought they had it in the late uh, 30, in 1937. They thought they had finally, and they were pushing it aggressively. McRae wrote a letter to William Watts Balls, a news and courier, uh, saying, we have nothing to do with what's going on north of the Mason-Dixon line. Mm-hmm. We think lynching will go away on its own, and we are content to wait. It was sort of a classic accommodationist approach. McRae mm-hmm. argued that I wanted to push for voting rights, and I thought I could basically... Uh, persuade the white power structure in Charleston to relent on voting rights if I showed that I was on their side in terms of this federal lynching law. That he was not a threat. That he was not a threat, yes. And But the other activists were furious, including Walter White, the head of the NAACP. He wrote the News and Courier and said, uh, this John McRae youngster does not speak for the NAACP anywhere anymore. And the board fired him as president, and he his career seemed to be over as an activist there in 1937. And, and then four years later, one of the most ardent mm-hmm. activists in the state, Majeska Simpkins, helps him bring his newspaper right. to Columbia. I mean, it's... It is, but, you know, it, is, it seems unfathomable, as I note in the book, but yet the struggle over strategy in the African-American community from World War One through World War Two in the Deep South, there are many... I'm finding now there were many stories like that. Well, and, and the thing about his argument, because there was an issue around reporting on, on, on crime that that got him in conflict with some people in Charleston. But the piece about focusing on voting and not anti-lynching legislation, which most people knew wasn't going to get through with the power of Southern Democrats, Charles Houston made the same argument to Walter White. Mm -hmm. You know, give Southern Negroes the vote. That will take care of lynching. And he wasn't against anti-lynching legislation, but that was more PR. You know, you have that, you, you use it as a platform to tell the country what's happening in the South, but politically. So uh, your point is well taken, but it, it, it's, you know, Walter White had his in- national institution building, something like John McRae's on the ground mm-hmm. in South Carolina. You know, what is going to change? And I think many people agree that vote, even in the 60s, that yeah. that debate goes on about right. voting and getting political power as the key yeah. to I think his else. language, though, was – they were referring also to the tone of his, his language, too. But it, it just – it emphasizes that point that this idea that there are accommodators and there are protesters in the black community during that time. Accommodators sometimes protested and protesters sometimes accommodated. And there and there are examples of that throughout um, the African-American community during those years uh, that I've found. And it's about, as August, the, the great late August Meyer uh, underscored, it's about strategy. Yeah. You, people, you call someone an accommodator yeah. or someone who's accommodating at a certain point towards a certain end. So it's really yeah. strategy as much as, you know, right. th- th- that people had to be creative and flexible in, in the context of being political, yeah. right? Somebody who could never be called an accommodationist, I think, would be Majeska Simpkins. And, Pat, why don't you, I think, introduce her to our listeners because she's been gone from the scene for a while and folks might not remember who she is. Uh, Majeska Simpkins was born and grew up in Columbia. She was born around 19... 1899. 1899. Because I remember when she passed. She lived to be almost 100. 
But um, her mother was the president of the first NAACP chapter in Columbia. So she grew up in a movement household, uh, educated at Benedict College. I think one of her first positions was working for the Tuberculosis Association. Was that it? Taught for a while until she got married, and it was a time when you couldn't be married and And be be a a teacher. teacher. Then she went to work for the tuberculosis and created a a Negro unit for the first time of the tuberculosis society in the 30s. And that was so important. And when I interviewed her on her front porch over on Marion Street, you know, she emphasized how she traveled the state in that position. So again, she's getting, knowing people around the whole state and, and really seeing the lay of the land. And that is going to be very important for building up a statewide NACP conference. Also, her marriage um, to Andrew Simpkins, it did um, serve to help her ability to organize and be an activist. He um, had businesses that he owned in the African-American community, He um, rental properties, um, retail outlets. He was not as beholden to a white <laughs> economic force, um, and therefore she had more room to move without having um, sort of retribution being carried out. Uh, against her, and she reached out to McRae uh, to bring the newspaper to Columbia, and she said, you know, my husband has space that we can give you to run the newspaper here, and we can help you get the newspaper up and running and keep it a, and keep it afloat. And so his economic independence did uh, give her more room to serve as an activist as well. And the newspaper started out as just the lighthouse, the lighthouse. in Charleston. In and Charleston. The, the informer was another newspaper in Sumter. Right. I guess it was Majeska Simpkins' idea to combine them and bring it to Columbia, really to become, as you say, the information sheet for the NAACP statewide. Mm-hmm. I think the, the goal was to make it certainly be the communications arm of the NAACP, but yet also to make sure that it was a popular paper in the African-American community, because if it wasn't, it wouldn't do the job. So it is a a full paper with a lot of sports news and other news, church church news, news, but a lot of society news, a lot of um, notes from every little crossroads around the state. Every week, there would be names of people from those communities who visited, who, who died, who got married. And in in many ways, that's what made the newspaper popular and sort of indispensable, in my view, in the community. And then on top of that, it it then could then deliver its political message through its editorials and headlines and news. But at the same time, the newspaper always seemed to struggle financially. Oh, yes. Again, we're talking about 1941, the end of the Depression. There's not a lot of money for something like a newspaper. It's it's a luxury in any in any household, actually white and black. I mean, the subscription to white newspapers yeah. circulation goes down in in, mm-hmm. in this time. Mm-hmm. But in every community, in the black business district, you had barbershops, you had beauty shops, and they might take the newspaper, which then enabled it the word to be spread through the community. No, that's an important point. Yes. How many people read one newspaper? Right. right? I mean, readership wasn't attached to how many you sold. It's the reach. The, um, um, there are not a lot of numbers in terms of circulation. The only number I can find, or the largest number I could find, and it's not verified, was 14,000 in terms of circulation. Well, you think of the whole state, that's not a lot. This paper, as you say, was being shared uh, among many readers. Also, it depended on advertising and including white advertising. McRae is funny talking about the difficulties of being a black newspaper at that time and especially a um, assertive black newspaper at that time. What did he call it? He, he said it's kind of a crazy business. You're asking whites to advertise in your paper while you're also blasting away at some other whites at the same time. <laughs> and then he also went on to say, and people of your own race don't support you enough. He was saying it every week. I mean, it was a struggle to stay afloat um, during the full 14-year run. Well, Pat, as the NAACP got stronger in South Carolina, there are tensions within the black community. And McCray at one time went after the AME church editorially, saying that they were accommodationists, that they weren't really doing what they should for their black brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating story. It's, I think, I don't have um, 
full documentation of this, but I think that's how Simpkins came to see McRae as maybe the right person for the job. This is in between 39 and 41 when it was the Carolina Lighthouse. The students at Allen, the AME college here, were protesting the president. And the details of the complaint are hard, but it did have something to do with the president expressing a more accommodationist line on something. And the students even struck. They even struck classes. They did not attend classes one day. And McRae, who had this new newspaper in, uh, Charles- in Charleston, jumps on the story. And he comes down hard on the side of the students. Um, and, the, and he proposed that the principal of Burke High School in Charleston be actually made president of um, Allen University. And to his amazement, it happened. <laughs> I don't think he thought that was going to happen. And, um, and so the president then um, became a longtime ally and supporter of McRae was eventually on the board of uh, directors of the Lighthouse Company. That story kind of made McRae, it put him on the map here in the African-American community, and I'm pretty sure that's when Simpkins took note of this young journalist in Charleston who might be the right voice, certainly a fearless voice. And, and McRae always said that the Palmetto Leader, the other paper, wouldn't touch the story. They were afraid of the AME Church, and but it, 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 it sort of as I say, put his uh, newspaper on the map and caught the attention of uh, Simpkins and other NAACP leaders, and they said, this guy's got a knack for for editorials. We've got to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Sid Bedingfield and Patricia Sullivan about Sid's book, Newspaper Wars, which deals with communications and the developing civil rights movement in South Carolina. Now, we've got McRae and Columbia. Mm -hmm. And he jumps on a number of issues, teacher pay, mm-hmm. the primary, the all-white primary. So, Pat, you want to deal with the, the teacher pay issue? Mm-hmm. Well, that was, you know, in terms of the strategy, Thurgood Marshall and the national legal team in challenging segregation in the South had this long-term legal strategy, which was worked out in conjunction with these communities around the South where the plaintiffs and the efforts would come from. And so teacher pay was an early issue, the blatant inequality of pay for white teachers and black teachers. That was something that McRae and, and the others, O.C.L. McCain is back by now in Sumter, you know, organized around. And, and they came into tension with the teachers union, the right. Palmetto State Teachers Association. Yeah, that's right. And, and that happened throughout the South in a way because if you're standing up to segregation or to inequality, the chances are you'll be fired. <laughs> yeah, right. You owe your job to a white school board. Yeah, right. exactly. and, and so it's a very tough issue. And, yeah. and I think what these early or these leaders then, Simpkins and McRae, you know, emphasizing the, the overriding importance of citizenship, of the fight for citizenship. McRae and Simpkins are pushing this. But at the same time, the national organization is going after the white primary in Texas, and they don't want to support what's going on here in South Carolina. Well, it's true. They were um, James Hinton by that time was was leading the NAACP. Majeska Simpkins was the executive secretary, and, and yes, they were they were pushing to move forward quickly. This is 1942-43. Move forward quickly on the equal pay suit, uh, and also on the vote. Uh, they were enrolling people uh, to vote here in South mm-hmm. Carolina and laying the groundwork for a suit against the all-white primary out of South Carolina. And Marshall kept saying, that's great. Keep keep finding plaintiffs. Keep trying to have people uh, register and not be allowed to register. But I've got this case in Texas that's taking priority right now. And Hinton was upset because he said, look, we've got everybody fired up here. If we don't follow through, we're going to lose face, and the um, NAACP in South Carolina is going to be damaged. And Marshall kept saying, but this Texas case, well, it turned out that the Texas case was Smith v. Allwright, in which the Supreme Court, I think even to Marshall's surprise in 1944, overturned the all-white primary. This was the Democratic primary. Right. The Democratic Party was the only one that counted in 
Right. Well, so. and, and I think one thing we should add in terms of the historical context is that because of the New Deal, you, know, you would wonder why do Southern blacks want to vote in a Democratic Party that seems to support white supremacy. And with the New Deal and the Roosevelt administration, there was a national Democratic Party, which, as Majestic Simpkins pointed out, African-Americans were getting relief jobs. They felt a connection to this national party. Again, to have this organization ready to respond to that. I mean, the New York Times reported that more blacks turned up to vote in 1936 because they wanted to vote for Roosevelt. So that makes the Democratic primary, even though the struggle had gone back, really an arena for people making a claim to be part of a national Democratic party. Even after Smith v. Allwright, the South Carolina Democratic Party took steps to get around that, to continue to use the all-white primary, and it became known as the South Carolina Plan. And the real battle post-Smith v. Allwright played out here in South Carolina between 44 and 47. That's when John McRae launched his political organization, the Progressive Democratic Party. He was determined to join the Democratic Party. And he claimed in his letter to Democratic Party officials that most African-Americans in the state want to be Democrats. But at the same time, Majeska Simpkins is attending the He's, National Republican Convention. Absolutely. They did not really agree on the right avenue. It wasn't like they were, you know. Well, but she, I mean, she wanted to overturn the all-white primary. She yeah, knew that would help. But yeah. her argument was you don't align with a particular party. Yeah. Uh, it, and it, it, it was part of the feud that developed between McRae and Simpkins over time. Yeah. So we've got two major cases in South Carolina in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the teacher equity issue, and the judge was? Judge J. Wadey's Waring. Who was the uncle of the editor of the News and Courier. Right, right. All right, that's the first case. Yeah. And then the, the next one is the all-white primary. Right. Same judge. Right. Same judge. Um, the Elmore v. Rice, and, um, and Waring's... Uh, Sudden about face, it sudden certainly to white South Carolinians uh, at the time, um, really shocked the state. And he sided def uh, definitively with the NAACP. And it, it shocked uh, Thurgood Marshall. He said yeah. it was the first time he tried a case <laughs> slack-jawed. Yeah. You know. yeah, especially on the, on the teacher pay. Mm -hmm. he, he, Marshall says that when he saw that Waring had been assigned to the case, he thought it was bad for the NAACP. He thought, oh, we got... Waring had been the campaign manager for Cotton Ed Smith in the 1938 um, election campaigns for Senate. Roosevelt was trying to unseat Cotton Ed Smith. Yeah. Ed Smith was running a, a racially demagogic campaign, and Waring was his campaign manager, one of his campaign managers, very close to him. And, and Marshall thought, this guy is going to be bad for us. He walks into court, and Waring just basically turns to the school board officials and says, you need to equalize pay. Mr. Marshall, when would you like to have the pay equalized here? And Marshall said his jaw hit the table. He didn't understand what was happening. And um, Waring had gone through a major transition. Uh, and of course, when we moved to the all-white primary, in the Elmore case, he, he says famously that in 1947, it's time for South Carolina to rejoin the union. Um, and uh, and then in 48, he has to rule again because they come back with a new machination to try to preserve the all-white primary. The, the pledge. The pledge, yes. He says you have to pledge that you support segregation in the state. Yeah. I, we could really talk for about three programs as yeah. people debate why weight is wearing changed mm -hmm. the yeah. way he did. Let's keep it on what happens between 1945 and, and 1965, mm -hmm. which is when you cut off. There are tensions within the black community. McRae and Simpkins are beginning to, their relationship is beginning to fray. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not just political parties. It's, it's other things. Yes, it is. To put it into, into context, you've already mentioned the financial um, difficulties of the newspaper. It was always tough. And it is true that Simpkins and the Simpkins family had been a key backer of the newspaper in helping it stay alive. The pressure exerted after Truman in 1948 proposed civil rights reform. That sent shockwaves through white leaders in South Carolina. 
And that's when they really got serious about pushing back against this NAACP-led movement of the 1940s. And in that sort of crackdown that came after 1948, you see the tensions within the black community exacerbated. And it's understandable why. They were facing greater psychological and uh, economic threats after that point. Uh, In 1950, for example, John McRae is charged with criminal libel. He had run um, the um, interview with a black defendant accused of rape of a white woman who claimed that he didn't do it, that the sex was consensual. The prosecutor charged him with criminal libel under a law that existed at that time that said you could not defame the victim of a um, sexual crime. The timing on it is odd. The timing on uh, he, he pled guilty at the advice of Marshall and NAACP attorneys, paid a fine, was on probation. Uh, he thought he could travel uh, if he got permission. Uh, he thought he had permission to travel to these speeches. The timing on when he was arrested for violating that probation is highly suspicious. It is in the middle of the um, Briggs v. Elliott case, which is about... Clarendon Clarendon County School desegregation case. But he spends two months on a chain gang at a time that damages the newspaper financially pretty severely and his own personal finances. He asked Simpkins to help offset some of those financial problems to help his family. She did, she says. He he never really uh, accepted uh, that she did enough or that the NAACP did enough. And so these tensions really came to a head at that time. And that would be in 1952, 53. And by 1954, the situation is untenable. Uh, And McRae actually leaves the newspaper to work for the Baltimore Afro-American. The newspaper tries to go forward but uh, McRae and uh, Simpkins are trading public accusations at each other in the Afro-American and in the Lighthouse and Informer. Uh, and eventually she just says to heck with it, throws her hands up and leaves the newspaper entirely. And the newspaper, which had back debt, it owed back taxes, folds. Uh, and so it's the end of the Lighthouse and Informer. But they had a lot of differences and some of them were political about whether we're supporting Republicans or supporting Democrats. Uh, some of them were personal about finances. Um, their relationship grew very difficult at the, at the end there. Uh, and it never recovered. They never reconciled. Um, well, and the story of what happened to the back copies of the newspapers, the Simpkins have one story, and Carrie Allen McRae, John's widow, she and McRae had another story. All we can say is that the issues were lost. They were pulped. Yeah. They were pulped. That's exactly the term that Carrie used, quoting her husband, and that was according to the McRae's to erase anything to do with John McRae. Mm. The yeah. other story was part of the settling the debt was they sold the back issues for right. pulp paper. Right, as part but of the dispensing with the all of it. The bottom line is we've got about 50 or 60 issues right. of this voice of... And thank goodness we have those, um, yeah. but it is very frustrating uh, yeah. to know that there were many, many more that would be much, be very valuable. Yeah. All right. The other side of the newspaper wars began mm-hmm. after the folding of the lighthouse and, and Informer. As the civil rights movement begins to take off, the pushback from the white press, for example, if folks sign a petition and Ellery, their names are published in a newspaper. So all of a sudden they face an economic threat. The other is as the civil rights movement begins to to take place nationally or even within the state, they didn't, the white press did not cover black news. And and, and that was sort of a strategy during this high peak years of the civil rights movement to not report on protests or sit-ins Thomas Waring, um, the editor of the News and Courier, um, would talk about this in in letters. And um, when the activist Septima Clark was being fired by the um, Charleston School Board in 1950, we need to explain why she was fired. The General Assembly passed a law that no state employee or no public employee in South Carolina could belong to the NAACP because it was a subversive organization. 
Right. And, so, and that's in the aftermath of Brown. That's right. part of, really part of massive resistance, right, to target the NACP. In 1956, Workman called it the segregation session, and they passed an interposition mm-hmm. resolution. They passed a number of things, including one that um, essentially made it illegal to be a member of, for a public employee to be a member of the NAACP. And when um, the Charleston School Board went after Septima Clark, Waring uh, made a point of not publishing stories about it. And he, you know, and he said it will only stir up more support for her. So I'm not even going to write about it. And that that continues through the 60s. It yeah. does. And again, in, in newspapers throughout the South, the white press. There's one story that does make the news that they can't shut out, and that is the Emmett Till lynching in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Right. And that initially is reported fairly widely, and then it becomes a national story, and in the local press in South Carolina, it just disappears. I was a little surprised when I first went back and looked. I looked at the News and Courier, and there it was every day. They call it the Mississippi murder, uh, and it was on the front page of you know, August 31st, September 1st, September 2nd. Uh, you know, it was it was there every day. Um, wire service reports from Mississippi about the case. I did note that when the woman, uh, Carolyn Bryant, got on the stand to talk about what happened that day, her version of what happened that day, um, it moved up to the top of the front page with double-decker headlines when she said that Till had whistled and grabbed her and things like that. And then, of course, Waring uh, wrote editorials about it, blaming the NAACP. Um, he would he said, the, you know, the murderers, they're awful and the people should be punished. But the real culprit here is the NAACP because they put it in his head, Emmett Till's head, that he should be demanding his freedom, his rights. Uh, and so that taught him to violate the rules and, and uh, mores of southern communities. And so he blamed it really on the NAACP. And then he was infuriated by the reaction from the northern press and the international press. It got attention of course, internationally, he was infuriated by that, and he thought it was another example of what he called the bias, the lack of objectivity of the northern press in covering racial issues in the South. He uh, he, he actually used the term paper curtain. He claimed paper. that a paper curtain had fallen uh, that blocked the southern point of view from being heard in the national press. Now, at one point, the news and courier thought it was going to get a Pulitzer. Are they... <laughs> Yes, I included this. Being a former journalist, and I thought it was an interesting story. This was about Strom Thurmond's return to public office in a dramatic way, right? The famous write-in candidate in which he wins the um, 54 Senate race, right? Burnett Maybank uh, dies in September, and the executive committee names Edgar Brown, the president pro tem of the Senate, who had never won a statewide race, and had run and lost in in uh, Senate primaries before. In fact, in that famous race uh, with Cotton Ed Smith uh, and Olin D. Johnson. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Edgar came in third. Yes. He had not uh, proven that he had real statewide appeal, but he was named to be the candidate. And as we've noted, if you are the nominee of the Democratic Party, you're going to be elected to the Senate in the general election. So they were essentially giving him the Senate seat and uh, wearing... Uh, to, to his credit, claimed that this was undemocratic, and he called on the Democratic Party to hold a primary. And when that wasn't, when it was clear that wasn't going to happen, he called on someone to come forward as a write-in candidate. And Waring um, thought that his front-page editorials and his campaign to oppose uh, Brown, and then eventually when Thurman stepped forward to run to support Thurman, had righted a wrong in the state and deserved a Pulitzer. The problem was. Every other paper in the state pretty much had done the same thing that he had done, including the state. I was going to say Sam Latterman, the state, put themselves in for a Pulitzer. And then they put themselves in, and and Waring was was, uh, outraged. He thought, well, they're just doing this to undermine, to, to split the vote so that we don't win a Pulitzer because we compete for statewide circulation. They they thought that it would split the Southern vote or split those who were likely to lean toward um, giving a Southern newspaper. Yeah, a Southern newspaper or for that particular story. It would split those who thought 
you know, that story was good and that there may be another paper that might slip in there and win for another entirely different story. Okay. All right. And you mentioned Jimmy Burns because he is key in this. He is key because he is, of course, the most popular politician in South Carolina. He had come out of retirement to run for governor in 1950. This is 54. He's leaving office. He's a you know, untouchable in yeah. terms of his popularity. Or revered. Yeah. He was yeah. above being a politician. At, at that, that point yeah. in South Carolina. And Waring, who had, had been, had developed a close relationship with Burns, asked Burns to write a letter in support of the News and Courier's uh, Pulitzer bid. And of course, this put Burns in a terrible position. He's going... I, you know, I love what you did. He had, by the way, Burns had supported Thurman in a very important endorsement right before the election, probably swung the election for him if, if anybody did. And he said, I love what your paper did. But, you know, if I do that, Sam Latimer at the state might not like it. And so Burns is a politician. He didn't want to anger one editor while he helps another one. And, of course, Waring is just distraught about this. Uh, and he realizes his his Pulitzer dreams were going to go down in the dust. And they did. And actually, a Southern paper did win the Pulitzer that year, but it was the Columbus, Georgia newspaper for its coverage of corruption in Phoenix City, Alabama. Which included at that time, yeah. the, the, the mob execution of the attorney general right. of Alabama. Right. right. Um, and the rise of John Patterson, who would yeah. later be governor and beat Wallace to be governor of Alabama. But that's a different story. Yeah. Look at, Looking back at this 30-year period, it's interesting that the, the role of the black press, uh, it kind of peaks, Pat, it seems to me, right after World War II because the, those three, the Chicago, the Baltimore, and then Pittsburgh papers, they pick up major financial support in terms of white advertising because mm-hmm. of the black participation in politics in the North. And then in the 60s, it begins to go down. Mm-hmm. Your CNN's not yet there, Sid. Right, (laughs) right. But TV does play a role in that, though, I think. Um, There's a whole – and my book doesn't – to be fair, my book doesn't really get into it. But, you know, there was – just looking at the larger newspaper business, um, the rise of television, which was extraordinarily quick in the 50s, went from, you know, 0.1 homes to nearly 50 percent of homes in like three years. And by 1955, 56, it was like 80% of the homes. So – what television did to the newspaper industry was damage the weaker newspapers and leave the stronger newspapers in place stronger than ever because then they became more like monopoly newspapers mm-hmm. in their communities. And if you think of the black press, you can see this as, you know, it was always difficult to make money unless you were the Defender or the Pittsburgh Courier for a while. Um, but they sort of got washed out with the rise of television, the end of the afternoon papers, which meant the end of what was called sort of the second read, right? You had the main newspaper in your town, and then in the old days, people might have a second read, something else they subscribed to. Well, TV kind of got rid of that, and that damaged uh, the black press. And of course, once you get into the 60s, you have more and more African-Americans using other media. And some of it had to do with desegregation later. Um, Some of it had to do with a sense that these papers seem to be from an older era. I've heard those in the African-American community talk about a time when many uh, younger African-Americans looked down their noses at the black press because, oh, that was that was my parents time. I wear this. This is a new age. We don't really need them anymore. That that kind of view. All right. Alfred's giving me the wind up sign. Sid, is any last word you would? you'd like to say before we sign off today? Do you mind? I was one key, you know, while the black press is declining, the white press is doing something very interesting in South Carolina, particularly Thomas Waring and William Workman at the News and Courier. And they are working closely with both Republican leaders in the state, Roger Milliken, Greg Shorey, and others, and with William F. Buckley and national conservative movement leaders to build the Republican Party in South Carolina. That's the big second half story in newspaper wars. Their effort after they realize that massive resistance to Brown is going to fail, they start looking for other options and they lose confidence in the Democratic Party as a supporter of white supremacy and turn to the conservative wing of the Republican Party. And they play significant role 
in the rise of the GOP in South Carolina, coming to um, culmination with Workman's 1962 run for the Senate, which was the first competitive race the Republican Party had run in a general election in South Carolina since Reconstruction. Pat Sullivan, any last word? I'm glad that that Sid uh, pointed that dimension of the history out because newspaper wars chose both, you know, the white and black press, how they helped shape this 30-year period in terms of uh, being active in responding to the changes and helping shaping the changes, and that uh, the rise of the Republican Party in South Carolina uh, as part of this story, and the role of William F. Buckley, who lived over in Camden and certainly was, had, had a presence in the state, really connects us to today in some ways. Pat Sullivan and Sid Bedingfield, thank you both for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The black press in South Carolina is ancient history to a lot of folks, and so is the white press from the 1940s through the 1960s. One of the things that made this book possible is the collection of the William D. Workman papers at the University of South Carolina. It's an incredibly rich treasure trove that gave Sid Bedingfield a window into the world of 20th century Southern journalism. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.